offer, I would invite you to turn in your copy of Scripture to Ephesians chapter 3 as we resume our sermon series through Paul's great letter to the Ephesians, which we have titled, To the Praise of the Glory of His Grace. And we are looking this evening at Ephesians chapter 3, verse 1 to 13. Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. If you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 977. And as usual, I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own Bibles open and to be reading along with us, with me. And here the Apostle Paul is transitioning now out of that first great chapter in which he set forth all the spiritual blessings that we have in Christ, and then moving to remind us of what has happened to us in Christ in our Christian experience to speak of his own ministry. And here the Apostle now writes, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And to bring to light for everyone what is the plan and the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart. Over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I think that it's very apparent as America has undergone uh, something of a radical culture shift in the last 10 to 20 years, that on one hand, so many things are new, so many things are disturbing to Christians and to others in this country. So many things are welcomed by others that were seen as taboo previously in society. And yet, one of the things that has not changed, though it's probably exponentially increased, is the number of New Age spirituality attempts, attempts to probe into the mysteries of spirituality, to probe into the depths of spiritual insight, to answer the big question, why am I here and how can I have a fulfilled life and how can I maximize my potential and how can I be the best person I can be and how can I have the best physique I can have? How can I care for the whole of me and and why am I here and how being here in this unexplained world full of mysteries and wonders and spirituality, how can I How can I self-actualize in the midst of that? And there are thousands and thousands and thousands of attempts to answer those great questions. That is nothing new. Through all of human history, men have been doing that. They've been trying to answer the great mysteries of why we're here and why this world exists 
and what we are to do in this world. And one of the very interesting things, as you well know, is that the Bible was uniquely given by God to answer those questions. It is the only book that will answer those questions for us. Yet, for most of redemptive history, many of those questions seem shrouded in enigma. There was so much that was hidden in the Old Testament. There was so much, even as God revealed little pieces, as we heard tonight, calling Israel his firstborn son. How could Israel have known that he was speaking about his eternal son and that they were reflecting something of that eternal mystery of the Lord Jesus? How could Israel have known that the serpent on the pole was pointing to the Lord Jesus, lifted up and crucified, that whoever looked at it would be healed, whoever looked at him would be saved? How could, how could Israel have known that the water from the rock was pointing to the Lord Jesus? How could Israel have known that the Passover lamb was a type, such a magnificent type of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? How could anyone reading the Old Testament revelation in the period of the Old Testament revelation have understood the depths of the mystery that God was revealing as he breathed out the scriptures for his people? And one of the marvelous things is that we live on this side of the cross. And though you see that even in the days leading up to the incarnation, there was just a, a small little remnant. There was a elderly man named Simeon. There was an elderly prophetess named Anna. There was a little band in Jerusalem who were waiting for the fulfillment and the revelation of the mystery that God had kept hidden from ages and generations, but now he was going to fully make known by bringing everything to light in the fullness of time. And I think we've lost something of the wonder of that because we have 2,000 years of church history riding on the tails of everything that we've learned, some of us, from when we grew up in Sunday school as children, and America having so much of the Christian prosperity and so much of Christian truth propagated in this country, we have lost something of the mystery. But, you know, as we reflect on this and we enter into looking at Paul's own testimony about being a steward of this mystery, there is something about the Apostle Paul that is so wonderful the Apostle Paul was a man that never got over two things. The Apostle Paul was a man who never got over two things. He never got over God's grace in the gospel reaching into his life and redeeming him. And he, not, he never got over God's grace in calling him to be a steward of the mysteries of God's grace in Christ. Paul never got over those. And you get something here in Ephesians 3 that is unique to everything that you find in the other books. Paul certainly speaks of his own Christian experience in Philippians 3. He speaks of the defense of his apostolic ministry in 2 Corinthians against those who were saying, Paul is no apostle. We like these guys. These guys are better. These men preach better. These men are more spectacular than the apostle Paul. And yet you find here in Ephesians 3 something of Paul just breaking forth and laying out for us something of his wonder at the gospel that he has set out in chapters 1 and 2, and which he is going to say is spread throughout the world through the preaching of the gospel that God had appointed him to do. Paul took those two great things. He never got over the grace of God in the gospel. He never got over the grace of God in the call for him to preach the gospel. And as we come and we look this evening, we're going to look at those two things. First, the minister of grace, and secondly, the mystery of grace. And we're going to see that 
we ought to have our minds and hearts stirred up by these things. Now, there's a very interesting structure to Ephesians. Ephesians 1, Paul has set out those great spiritual blessings. Here are the seven spiritual blessings that you have been blessed with in the heavenly places in Christ. You were chosen in him before the foundations of the world. You were adopted into his family. You were predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. You were filled with wisdom and knowledge. You were given understanding in the mystery, in the revelation of Jesus Christ and the unfolding of that revelation. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit and you were secured the guarantee for the everlasting inheritance. And then in chapter 2, we saw that Paul then explains how that grace and all those blessings come to you in your Christian experience. You were dead in sins. He made you alive together with Christ. He raised you up with Christ. By grace, you have been saved, not of works. He, he seated you in the heavenly places with Christ, positionally in union with Jesus. And then he explained how God brought Jew and Gentile together in one in Christ and in the experience, how you experienced a, a reconciliation that the world had never seen with other people who had nothing in common with you except that they too were dead in sins and needed to be raised again to spiritual life. And now what Paul's doing in chapter 3 is the Apostle Paul's essentially saying, here are the truths about the grace that has come to you in Jesus Christ, chapter 1. Here's the truth about your experience of it in time and space in your life in chapter 2. And here is how that grace and that gospel is spread throughout the world. This is what God has appointed for the spread of that gospel throughout the world. And as Paul reflects on that, Paul begins to think of his own person and situation. Now, it's important for us to understand that the Apostle Paul is not preaching in a megachurch. He is in prison, which only enhances the glory of what he's writing. The Apostle Paul has not had this massive success on a human level. He's not speaking at leadership conferences. He's not, he's not one of the big conference speakers on the circuit, doing the conference circuit, receiving all kinds of adulation online. He is the Apostle who's been rejected by the churches he planted, rejected by the very people that he went to, and now in prison for bringing the gospel to them, continuing to have a burden for them to understand everything that they have in Jesus. This is a remarkable man. Let me say this this evening. There has never, apart from the Lord Jesus, been a man like the Apostle Paul. He is in chains in Caesar's palace, probably. He is seen as one of the greatest threats to the Roman Empire for proclaiming this message of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And he is rejoicing over the ministry that God has called him to. This is a remarkable man. Notice what he does. He says in verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul does something very interesting here. He is a prisoner of Caesar, but he looks at his suffering and he looks at the experience he's going through for the sake of the gospel and he reads it through the lens of Christ. I think this is remarkable. He takes the very truth about what he is suffering, that he's a prisoner for the sake of the gospel, and he doesn't say, I'm a prisoner of Caesar's. He says, I'm a prisoner of Christ. I have been taken captive. I am in chains, and I have been taken captive by the Lord Jesus. I am where I am precisely because Jesus wants me here. 
This is a remarkable man, you know. Um, I, I, I dread the thought of affliction, suffering, great loss. I think we probably all do. If we don't, there's something wrong with us, horribly wrong with us. Um, I dread that thought, and yet I know, I know that it's in the crucible of affliction that all the sweetness of God's grace is manifested in our lives. I know that the greatest books that have ever been written in human history, the letter to the Ephesians and Pilgrim's Progress, were written in a prison by those who are in chains for Jesus. And the Apostle Paul starts by speaking of his ministry as one who is a prisoner for Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, everything Paul is going to say is bound up in those two statements. I'm a prisoner of Christ on behalf of you Gentiles. The Apostle Paul lived exclusively for two things, the glory of God, the glory of God, and the salvation of the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul lived for those two things. Those were the two things that drove him and compelled him forward in everything that he did. I love this. Eric Alexander says, The Apostle Paul lived, breathed, ate, slept, worked, prayed, preached, suffered, bled, and ultimately died gladly for the glory of God and the sake of the Gentiles. I've got to read that to you again because it is absolutely true. The Apostle Paul lived, breathed, slept, worked, prayed, preached, suffered, bled, and ultimately died gladly for the glory of God and the sake of the Gentiles. The Apostle Paul understood that not only his conversion on the Damascus Road, but the stewardship that had been entrusted to him, the enormity of the call, in a way even more unique than all the other apostles, more unique than any other minister that has ever lived in human history, the Apostle Paul was singularly used by God to take the gospel for the first time in human history to the unreached peoples outside of Israel. And the whole world was unreached. And this one man received such a call from God by grace that he was called to take the gospel to the entire world so the people that otherwise would have no chance of salvation and who would perish eternally would now be made co-heirs with the believing Jews who have trusted in Jesus Christ. And he got something of the enormity of this. He understood something of the enormity of this. Now, what's interesting is as, as many ministers today do, and they, they uh, flaunt their own ministries, and they, they um, humble brag about how great they are and how much their ministry is thriving and growing, and, and then they're a guru to everybody else. And, and in America, that's a, unique, that's a unique challenge. The more influence a man gets, the more likely to pride. Not the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was laid low in chains. Remember, this is the Apostle who says... In 2 Corinthians 12, because of the abundance of revelation given to me, because I know so much more than all of you, a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan was given to me, lest I be exalted above measure. Whatever that thorn was, whether it was his eyes, or being beaten, or being stoned, or the shipwrecks, or the prison, or some special demon to, to haunt him about murdering Stephen, whatever that thorn was, it was there to keep the Apostle Paul humble. And very interestingly, Paul was supremely humble. There is no minister you will ever hear that you admire or think well of who comes anywhere close to the godliness 
and the humility and the zeal of the Apostle Paul. None. There is no minister you will ever admire. doesn't matter if it's John Piper, Sinclair Ferguson. doesn't matter who it is. That every man you know and you hear preach pales in comparison to the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul, who had been given the greatest stewardship and the greatest call any man had ever received, post the Lord Jesus, is the most humble. Notice, the Apostle Paul says in verse 7, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. Now, it's interesting. Paul is almost juxtaposing words to help you. He's almost fumbling over his words to help you understand what he thinks about his own ministry. He doesn't think he did anything to get this ministry. He doesn't think he brings anything special to the table. He knew he had more knowledge. He knew he was more gifted. He knew all of that. He says that. But he says, I received this. Notice verse 7. I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace. It's, it's almost superfluous to say gift. Grace is a gift. He could have said according to the grace of God, but he says according to the gift of God's grace that there was nothing that commended Paul to God in order to be the man that God wanted him to be. And there's nothing about you that commends you to God in any way whatsoever. There's not one thing about you doesn't matter if you study diligently. It doesn't matter if you try to be a great husband, a great wife, a great father, a great mother, an obedient child. There is nothing in you that commends you to God at all. Nothing. Nothing. I'm going to say that again. Nothing. There is nothing in you. The Apostle Paul actually says in this chapter, and, and he can't even explain it, he says, I'm... Um, lesser than the leaser of all the saints. I'm less than the least of all the saints. So if there's a saint who doesn't deserve anything, I deserve less than him. That's Paul's mindset. The great apostle Paul gets God's grace so enormously in his calling that he would actually say, I'm nothing, I'm less than nothing, and I'm less than anybody else that thinks they're nothing. And I don't deserve anything. And the enormity of what God had deposited into the life of the Apostle Paul was merely a gift of God's grace. And you know why that's important? Because we forget this all the time. And we think there's something about us and something, especially the longer we've been a Christian, we think, well, I did this. I mean, I do this. I do this and this and this. And I do this. And I didn't I do that. And I worked hard. And they didn't do anything. And self-righteousness, works righteousness is always there. It's always waiting to pounce and take the driver's seat. And Paul would teach us in chains that the great stewardship that he was entrusted was entrusted to him merely by grace and that he was humbled and overjoyed by that. Notice and he realizes it's not for himself. This is part of the key. When we start to think Whatever I've received from the Lord, whatever gifts I may have, whatever I seem to be good at, whenever we start to turn that in and think it's for us, we start to become narcissistic, self-centered, demanding, complaining, judgmental, envying, jealous of others, comparing ourselves with others. And ultimately what we do is then we set a standard of righteousness. Whatever I think I'm good at, if, if I think I'm good at preaching, then other people don't do what I do. That's the standard of righteousness. They should live up to that. And that's, that's legalism, and that's what we do. And notice, 
what Paul does. Paul says, notice this, Paul says, you have heard in verse 2 of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Notice the secret is that Paul understands his ministry is for them. You know, it's kind of cliche in um, certain reform circles to say, you know, don't, don't think you're so important um, that, you know, God can't replace you in ministry. And that's true. It's very, very true. God doesn't need us. God doesn't need me. God certainly doesn't need anyone in this room. He doesn't need any of us. He chooses to use us. But there's another sense in which the Apostle Paul will say in Philippians, I can't wait to go to be with Christ. For me, to live as Christ, to die as gain, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better, he says, nevertheless, for me to stay here is more needful for you. He realized that his calling was a calling for the good of the people and the salvation of those to whom God sent him. And he realized in a very special way that the gospel of God's grace that he has articulated in chapter 1 and 2 would not go out to the nations and that men would not be saved unless he was faithful to that calling. You know, this is a very powerful chapter. There are people that think, well, what about all those people that will never hear the gospel? They will perish forever. That's why we do missions. That's why there was an Apostle Paul. That's why we need preachers. That's why we need to support good seminaries. That's why we need to pray to the Lord of the harvest that he raises up faithful ministers to go into the harvest. That's why we want men that are going to be faithful to the calling to which God has called them. The apostle will tell us. You know, it's, I think, fascinating that in chapter 2, you almost wonder when Paul's writing his letters if he's not kind of trying to anticipate where he's going next. It's almost like he gets ahead of himself. Paul will forget to end sentences all the time. It's wonderful. It drives grammarians crazy. Um, some of you pick on my typos, thankfully. <laughs> Paul would be subject to all kinds of grammatical corrections because the apostle feels in himself an, an overwhelming sense of wanting to proclaim what God the Holy Spirit is superintending in him to give to the church. And one of the things he did in chapter 2, I don't know if you remember or not, but in verse 17 when he's explaining how Christ is our peace and he made peace through the blood of his cross, he says in verse 17, he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. Paul essentially is saying, when I came to Ephesus and preached to you, Acts chapter 20, he set up the school of Tyrannus, he did three years of preaching and training there that when he preached Christ and the gospel, it was Christ preaching through him. And so now he is picking back up on that in chapter three, and he's explaining the overwhelming greatness of God's grace to make him a minister of this grace for the sake of the Gentiles. Now, notice how Paul ends verse 13. He says to them, I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You see, the Apostle Paul understood that even his sufferings were for the salvation of those to whom he was ministering. They, they verified it. They put, a, they put a validity on it, a veracity about what he was doing and saying and teaching. They legitimated in their minds that this man was not about himself. He was not about self-aggrandizing and boasting and building himself up and making himself great and having other people serve him and being seated at the best conference table. He, under, he was saying to them, I'm in chains. Don't be discouraged. It's for you. He understood 
how he was to be a selfless servant like the Lord Jesus. I'm going to say this this evening. We desperately, I desperately, you desperately need to learn this. This is not just about ministers. This is a model of what the Christian heart looks like for any believer engaged in Christian ministry in any level whatsoever, be it professional or volunteer, whether it be in church or whether it be in the home. It is a model that whatever we do, if we, if we seek to encourage others, if we seek to use teaching gifts, if you teach in Bible studies, if you lead a small group, if you get together with other women and study the scripture together, it is for their good, not yours first and foremost. That's the principle. And we are so selfish to turn it all in on ourselves. And so we come back and we hear the Apostle Paul never getting over that grace of God and the gift of God's grace to him in calling him to be a steward of those everlasting mysteries. But secondly, Paul explains and kind of weaves through this whole section what the mysteries of grace are. He's told us about himself as the minister of grace. Now he tells us about the mysteries of grace. And you will, you'll notice if you took a, a pen and underlined it, the word mystery is used four times in this section. It shows up in verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me. Again, in verse 4, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ. Again, in verse 6, he tells us that this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. And then he tells us again in verse 9 that... He was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Now, we tend to think of a mystery as something that will never be solved, as some sort of enigmatic riddle or some sort of hidden thing that will just remain hidden forever and you just embrace the mystery of it in a mystical way and you you just wallow in this ethereal mystery of nothingness. That's how we think about mysteries or some like mystery show, crime show. Um, And yet, Paul is speaking about something God's revealing. The mystery is a revelation. The mystery is something God wants you to know. Um, He's going to actually do two things. He's going to tell us that that mystery is first and foremost about the unsearchable riches of Christ. And then secondly, he's going to tell us that that mystery is about the eternal purpose of God and redemption. Now, Here's what I'd like us to take away from this tonight as we look at those two things. We ought to be overwhelmed at the fact that of all the people on the face of the earth, because there are are billions of people that will never hear what you're hearing tonight. Billions. Billions of Muslims who will never hear what you're hearing. Billions of Hindus, millions of Hindus, and millions and millions and millions who will never, ever, ever hear what you're hearing. And my, how we take it for granted. And how our hearts are often cold and dull and indifferent. And we've lost the sense of the wonder. And we just want to know how to have a better marriage. And the apostle is not going to let us do that. He is going to bring us down and he is going to say, sit down and let me explain to you the mysteries that were hidden from ages and generations. But now God has made known to you who are Gentiles, who shouldn't have even had a right to know the mysteries because the scriptures were given to the Jews. And yet now you who were far off, you who had no claim or stake to the covenant promises, who were without hope, as he said, without God, without Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, now you 
are the recipients of the eternal mysteries of God. You actually get to understand why things are the way they are and why God is doing what he's doing and how all of that works to his glory and your salvation. That is astonishing that the everlasting God deemed it fit, not because of anything in you, but merely by his grace to make known his eternal mystery to you. know, This week, last week, the week before, I have thought incessantly, why, why, why wasn't I born in a Muslim family? And you know what? You can ask that question, and the only answer you can give is because God was gracious not to put me in a Muslim family. And you could ask, why wasn't I born in a Hindu family? Why wasn't I born in another uh, idolatrous family? Why wasn't I born in an oppressive country where I'm being oppressed and beaten and women are being sold into sex slaves? The whole world is different than what we're living in right now. And even that in itself is a kindness of the Lord because God, by his grace, decided to make known the mysteries of his everlasting will to us. And so as Paul begins to unpack this, the first thing he tells us is that the mystery is the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, you could take these in either order. That's verse 8. Notice Paul says to me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, I love this because what Paul is essentially saying is that the ministry he was called to was a ministry of preaching Christ in all of his depth and all of the intricacies of the Lord Jesus, every different angle of the Lord Jesus, and that he could never exhaust that, and that you would never comprehend it to the full. And I think the Apostle Paul, when he comes to the end of this chapter, notice what he does. I think he picks back up on the unsearchable riches. When he, when he says in verse 18, he prays that, that the saints would be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge. So the love of Jesus can never be exhausted. The work of Jesus can never be exhausted. Whatever you think you know about Jesus Christ, there is so much more that you don't know. Whatever you think you have learned in the scriptures, there is so much more to learn in the scriptures. Whatever you have learned by experience when he has restored your soul and given you peace of conscience and you've returned to him and you've had your soul washed again in his blood and he's assured you again that you belong to him, whatever experience you've had, there is more to be had in Jesus. There is always more in Jesus. I love the hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free. I love the way the hymn writer talks about rolling over and underneath and all around the love of Jesus is the greatest part of the everlasting mystery, that God has given his son to be an object of saving interest for all eternity. You know, people often say, and you've probably heard this, that, you know, well, we don't know now, but we'll know in heaven. Maybe not. You're still going to be a creature, not going to be God. It's a lot you're not going to know in heaven. But I think there is one thing we can be sure of. We will be spending eternity plumbing the depths of the Lord Jesus, and there will be more and more and more and more. As the hymn writer says, when from death I'm free, I'll sing on, I'll sing on. When from death I'm free, I'll sing on. 
I'll sing on. I will explore the Lord Jesus, the unsearchable riches. We will be gazing and wondering, how could God die for me? How could God die for such a wretch like me? How could God redeem such a worthless, wicked sinner like me? How could God take the punishment for a hell-deserving sinner like me? How, what kind of God is this that he would willingly lay down his life and take it again? What kind of God is this who would love an unlovely people and love them to the end? What kind of God is this who would stoop and serve his people by washing them with his blood? What kind of God is this who promises that in glory we're going to sit down with him and the Son of Man is going to come and he's going to serve his people? What kind of God is that? The God who, to whom belongs all glory and power and dominion and wisdom and worth and value and worship and excellency says he's going to come and he's going to serve his people for all of eternity. He's going to shepherd his people and lead them besides rivers of living water. He is going to lead you to the green pastures all eternity of ever, everlasting joy and satisfaction and peace. And we will stand amazed and wonder at this Savior, Jesus Christ. And our problem is that we think we know enough about Jesus and we've got enough of the facts of the gospel and our hearts are unmoved And we live our life in selfishness and we never realize that there's an infinite treasure in front of me. Now, when I, I'll never forget, I was converted, I think you guys know from Facebook, 14 years ago today. And probably six months, perhaps four months after I was converted, I'll never forget sitting on the couch in Mike Cuneo's house, who you'll meet when he's back from Italy here in November, and and reading the parable of the treasure in the field. And having grown up in a Christian home, I knew the parable of the treasure in the field. I knew what the scripture taught, but the Bible was just an intellectual dead book because I was dead in sins. And uh, filled with the Holy Spirit now, I'll never forget reading the parable of the treasure in the field and thinking he was there the whole time right in front of me and I didn't see you. I didn't see the Lord Jesus. The treasure was right there the whole time. It was right there. He is the pearl of great price. There are riches in Jesus that we have no idea about. And you know, the saddest thing is the world never talks about it. And sadly, a lot of churches never talk about it. And the apostle wants you to understand the greatest part of the mystery is the unsearchable riches of Jesus. Secondly, he tells us that the the mystery is the eternal purpose of God and redemption for Jew and Gentile. Notice that he is he is just inundated in this chapter with thoughts about the Gentiles. He is overwhelmed that the Gentiles who never should have ever gotten the gospel or gotten anything, that's you, that's me, no claim to it, no right, no birthright, no covenant promises, far from God are now being made heirs, and that that was God's plan from eternity, that in the preaching of the gospel to the nations, whenever people are converted out of every tongue and tribe and nation and language, God is showing why he created the world. That's why did God create the world? Well, for his own glory. Yes, we know that. We get that. But God created the world to redeem a people unto himself. Um, I love the way Jonathan Edwards puts this. He's the best at this, by the way. Edwards says, this seems to have been one reason why God made the world by Jesus Christ. The creation of the world was a work that was subordinate to the work of redemption. Now you got to listen, you got to get this. 
world was created through Jesus. He's the word. And yet the work of creation is subordinate to the work of redemption, Edward says. But the work of redemption was properly the work of the son. It belongs to him to do the whole of it. God has entirely left it with him. And therefore, whatever is needful to be done in order to it, to prepare the way for it, to introduce it and to complete it, it belongs to Jesus to do. God created the world for Jesus to come and redeem a people to himself. Why is there evil in the world? Because God created a world for Jesus to come into and redeem a people to himself. Why have you believed the gospel? Because God shows you in Christ before the foundation of the world and sent his son into the world. Ephesians 1.4. So it's, Paul, is, Paul is enamored with the eternal purposes of God in the work of redemption. Not only the apostle Paul, now follow me on this, but the Apostle Paul says, so great is this mystery, so great is this purpose for which God has created the world, that the angels are overwhelmed in exploring it, that the angels are probing into it. Like Peter says, they are standing and looking in on it, trying to see all the wonders and all the riches of what God is doing in the work of redemption in the lives of people like you and me. The angels, think of it, care about what God is doing in our lives, notice what Paul says in verse 10. So that through the church, what he means by that is what God is doing in his people. The manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. That God is showing off what he's doing to the angels. We've talked about that illustration that you're like a painting. You're God's workmanship. He's restored his image. He's restored that canvas, and, and you're built into that temple. That's, that's like an art museum, and you're, you're on display in there. And, and those coming through that museum are not just men, but angels. And they're looking. God is showing off what he's doing. You know, um, I love this, by the way. Sinclair Ferguson on Ephesians 3.10 says, What if what God is doing in your life is only happening so that he can say to the angels, Do you see what I'm doing? What if what's happening in your life, the trials, the difficulties, the stuff you don't get, that we can't figure out why, is only happening because God wants to say to the angels, look at what I'm doing. I love that. That's Ephesians 3.10. That's in the Bible. It's not just Sinclair Ferguson. It's just well said. What if everything God is doing in your life and in the lives of other believers is to display his glory because it is. It is. You know, we go through our days, go through our weeks, we go through our months, and we forget this. Our interactions in the home, our sinful interactions in the church, our interactions in the world, our being consumed with our own ambitions, we forget. We are, we are on display to show forth the eternal purposes of God in sending Christ to redeem a people, to bring God glory, and to bring us to glory. And that's, that's where Paul's going to go. Paul's going to end it with that, that statement in verse 12, that in Christ, notice 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ, that God, this was the eternal plan of God, because at the end of the day, what you want for your life doesn't matter. What God has attended already eternally for you is the only thing that matters. Many are the plans of a man's heart, but the Lord's counsel, that will stand. 
It doesn't matter what ambitions we have. God has an eternal purpose for you, and he is working that purpose out in the world through Christ. And notice this verse 12, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. What he's telling us is, listen, this is to bring God glory, but it's for you. It's for you. It's for you to enjoy. It's for you to enjoy the riches of Christ. It's for you to go to God and be reconciled and have boldness and access and to go into the very throne room of heaven and to bring all of your needs to him and to pour out your heart to him and to cast your cares on him and then to, to go to glory ultimately, to be brought to glory. Paul's sufferings were so that these Ephesians could be brought to glory. The preaching of the gospel is so that you will make it to glory, that you'll enjoy the boldness and access now and you'll enjoy the unsearchable riches of Jesus forever. I want to encourage us as we, as we close our time this evening, and I, I want us to think, really, really think hard. Am I ever amazed at God's grace to me? Am I ever really amazed? Not intellectually categorizing things properly, but really amazed that God has had grace on me? Am I amazed at the fact that he's given you, given me gifts that he wants us to use to care for each other? That God purposed in eternity, not only to redeem you, but to give you gifts to minister to others? Am I amazed that God is making known his eternal mystery and revealing the unsearchable riches of Jesus to me? You know, when I start thinking about why wasn't I born in this country under this regime, under this idolatry and whatever else, I, I start, tend to start to feel guilty. I start to feel guilty about how much I live for self. And th there's a sense where that's right. I mean, if we're living sinfully for self, we should feel guilty because we are guilty. So this is not a, hey, get rid of all your guilt. This is go to Jesus and get rid of your guilt. So we go to Jesus, but... More than feeling guilty, we should, we should want to be amazed afresh at what God has done in our lives and what he's doing and how he's displaying his manifold wisdom and his glory even to the angels, to the principalities and powers in our lives, wherever we are, using the gifts that he's given us to minister to others for their good and for their spiritual benefit. I hope that you will consider those things and we will go to the Lord and, and go to him with that boldness and access we have so that we might grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus. Let's pray this evening. Father, we do thank you for this passage. It is full, and we thank you that you have sent it out to us, that you have spoken to us this evening through your word. We pray that you would make us um, humble men and women who receive your word with meekness and with humility, who acknowledge that we deserve nothing but judgment, who have yet received nothing but grace from your hand. We thank you for the greatness of your grace, for the gift of your grace in each of the lives of the men and women present here. We thank you for how you're working out your eternal purpose in our lives through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would make us a people who are amazed by that and who give you praise and honor and glory and who come boldly into your presence and who trust you by faith in your Son. We thank you, our God, for all that you've given us in Christ. Please show us more of the unsearchable riches of Jesus. We pray these things in his name. Amen.